Hello and welcome back to the wilderness and this week for part 8 we've arrived at Mount Sinai and we're looking at chapter 19. I'm not going to look, I'll warn you now, uh, at the Ten Commandments as such. That's a whole series of its own uh, but I do want to look just a little bit about the circumstances in which they were given. Now, in fact, there's a large section, chapters 19 to 24, which provide a literary whole, and they are all about the covenant that was made between God and his people, of which the Ten Commandments are just a small part. So I'm not going to go into that uh, in great detail, but I do want to look at their arrival and the setup, as it were, for giving of the Ten Commandments. Now, chapter 19, uh, and in fact this whole literary unit through to chapter 24, as we've said before, a mixture of different sources, and that accounts for the lumpiness sometimes in the narrative so for example in the first half of verse 3 of chapter 19 Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God and then in the second half of the verse it looks very much like God is kind of shouting down from the mountain to Moses and that's exactly the the kind of inconsistency the the lumpiness that you get when you've got these different sources being stitched together uh, sometimes not all that skillfully by the editor You've also got the characteristic different names of God, Elohim or Yahweh, used interchangeably throughout. And that marks out, as we've already said, J and E as two different sources from two different historical settings. But then also you've got a little bit of P at the start, uh, P, the priestly code, the, the kind of religious archivists and liturgists wanting to make accurate records of everything for the future so that if anything disastrous like the exile ever happened again, it wouldn't be that everything had got lost. And so it's very characteristic of P that they uh, bung a date on this, a very clear uh, location within time why so that we can celebrate that day liturgically uh, down the years since then and so you have got the whole section a bit of a mishmash none of it matters particularly it just makes it a bit lumpy to read but as one of the most significant if not the most significant events for Israel uh, it's not surprising that you've got different versions of the story being told. So this chapter is all about the, the covenant between God and his people. And of course in the next chapter we'll hear what the deal is exactly with the Ten Commandments. How did it come about? How does it work? It's not of course the first covenant uh, that started with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. It's been developed and remade with different patriarchs at different times. 
But now we've arrived at Sinai, we have the definitive version, or at least the definitive version until the new covenant in Jesus. There are lots of ways we could come at this chapter, and I'm aware particularly that this whole series is looking through the lens of Moses the leader and and what kind of a leader he is. But actually today I want to do something slightly different because stuff that struck me from this passage, which I hope might be useful for you, was um, very different. And it's about the question, how exactly does this covenant work? And in particular, how do you get into it? And what implications might there be with a kind of compare and contrast thing for those of us now living under the new covenant? And as I thought about this, there's some really interesting stuff which hit me. Or at least I thought it was really interesting. I want to come into it, therefore, by considering the contrast between this covenant with God and the cultic activities of other nations, with which, of course, Israel had become familiar through their time in Egypt and through various other encounters with different nations. And if you look around at the religious landscape today, there are lots of religions, although their understandings of God would be very different and how we relate to God are very different, nevertheless there will be similar disciplines, similar things that they did. So for example, prayer, fasting, giving, pilgrimage. Some of these uh, spiritual disciplines are common to many different systems of faith. And so it's the same that ancient religion and ancient worship had some common factors. So how does the worship of and the covenant with Yahweh compared with what the people may have seen or even been involved in in the past and at the risk of turning this into a sermon god forbid i should do that uh, nevertheless there are six points i think which came out of the text for me uh, about how you come how you approach god in this covenant relationship and then to make up the perfect number as a seventh point that i want to make to end with So that's the uh, map for this one. And the first thing to say is this, that they came to a mystery. And uh, the whole scene with clouds and smoke and so on, the idea, of course, which is taken up in Hebrews chapter 12, that's all about the utter transcendence of God, a God who has to protect us by hiding himself in in cloud and smoke and so on. Uh, That's a theme to which we will return, but the first kind of difference, if you like, between the pagan cult and this is, yes, there is mystery, but this is different 
because we are no longer dealing with a God whom we didn't understand, whose actions were capricious and unpredictable, but with a God who has revealed himself and his purposes to us. And a famous theologian called James Hastings makes this point entirely. There is mystery, there is an air of mystery, but it's not about a kind of nervous guesswork as to what God is up to. God's mystery is a very different thing because the covenant makes the relationship very clear. So they came to mystery, but they came to a very different kind of mystery from that of the other systems of worship around them. Second thing, they came by invitation. And the great paradox of our God is that although he is different, although he is transcendent, yet he invites us into a relationship with him. It begins with him and what he's done. And again, we'll return to that in a moment. Um, verse 4, you've seen what I have done. Um, I, I, I wonder whether the wings of eagles bit might not be quite how the people had seen it after three months of near starvation and thirst and enemy attacks and so on. He didn't just kind of whisk them out of Egypt and uh, plonk them on Mount Sinai. But nevertheless, uh, the point remains, it begins with God and we are invited to respond. And as Christians, it begins with the work of Christ, which we are invited to make our own. Number three, they came after preparation. When God appears, the technical term for that is a theophany. And again, that's something that uh, pagan religions would experience in some way which is an interesting thing when uh, you don't believe that their gods were real so I'm sure in some cases at least it's a demonic thing but as theophanies go this is a pretty standard one in verse 10 they're given three days notice to get ready and in all kinds of cultic settings where there is some kind of expectation of a, a meeting, an encounter with God, the people have some preparation to do. And again, that's standard across many of the ancient religions. It's usually about cleanliness, which of course is next to godliness, according to John Wesley. And also, interestingly, it's traditionally about refraining from sex. Now, whether those two are linked and whether sex was in some ways felt to be dirty, I don't know. Or, or whether maybe it's about stopping something you like a lot in favour of something you want more than anything else. That seems to be the thrust of some of Paul's stuff in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
about that. But the point is that to enter into a relationship with God is not something that you just kind of stroll into. It does require some preparation. It used to be the custom among some Christians to, for example, to fast on a Sunday before you received Holy Communion. Now, of course, there's no biblical command to do that. But it was just a, a piece of devotion which many Christians felt was was helpful because it just marks it out as something that makes it just that little bit more special and therefore says something about the specialness of God. And an interesting question is this, what have we got to leave behind when we come to God? Yes, our sin, obviously, but sometimes maybe some things that aren't sin, things which are just okay and are just normal, but we choose to mark God out as more special by going without. Number four, they come through intermediary. In this case, Moses their leader. It's interesting that God first speaks to Moses. Um, that's my favourite definition of a leader, by the way, someone whom God tells before he tells anyone else. And as the people hear God speaking to Moses, then that's when they will put their trust in him. Verse 9, it's not like that he's speaking to them directly at this stage, but at least he's speaking, and he's speaking to the one whom they regard as their leader, even if they do want to uh, stone him to death at times. And it's up to Moses to pass on what God says to the people. Now, of course, under the new covenant that's been democratised, any Christian can and should hear God speaking. But it's worth remembering that we can only do that because God first spoke through his son. It's because of Jesus that we can be in relationship with God and hear from him. And in fact, the whole point of being the chosen people, the Jews, as we've said before, and as I'm going to say again in a moment, they are priests, they are intermediaries for the rest. So just as the Jews need Moses to be their intermediary to put them in touch with God, so all the nations of the world needed the Jews to put them in touch with God. Number five, I, I thought this was particularly interesting. They come by remembering, not through believing. And I found that quite a challenging idea. The idea that you have to... <coughs> excuse me. The idea that you have to do something through an act of human will, make a decision for yourself to believe in God um, uh, and that that's the way you get access to God, it, that's nowhere asked of this people. That That's a pagan idea. 
what they do have to do is remember verse 4 we've we've mentioned that already hope you remember that um they have to remember what he has already done and again we see that picture of the initiative coming from the action of god to which we're invited to respond not through what faith what belief we ourselves can muster and of course we're used to the idea of as Christians, that we do have to believe, we do have to put our faith in God. But, so often that is because of what we have seen him doing in our lives in the past. And it's a New Testament idea that we can use the action of God in the past to inspire and inform our action, our belief, in the future and one of the things that i wonder about the church today is how much people have actually ever seen god doing anything much at all or is it about what we're supposed to believe in him what we've been taught um, but without actually any real evidence uh, and if that is true, no wonder we're not that good at evangelism if we've never actually seen anything of God's action in our lives. Or, if we have, we've been socialised by the Anglican Church into never talking about it ever uh, and regarding it as slightly embarrassing and, and very, very private. So we come to God by remembering rather than by believing or or they did at least and number six final thing they come to work uh it, it's really interesting when you ask christians why they are christians and you often get don't you when when you hear testimonies being given you get lots of stuff about oh jesus has done this for me and he's given me peace and uh, all the rest of it the fact of the matter is that this covenant relationship as we've already said is so that they can be a nation of priesthood to the other nations who are not God's special chosen people I was doing some teaching uh, just last week on the theology of mission in the writings of St Paul I'm, I'm Sorry that uh, you've missed out on that because you would have been gripped by it, obviously. But one of the things that, that came out of that material was this, that for Paul, his conversion was his call to ministry. And on that Damascus road, he didn't have his life turned around so that some years later, when he'd grown a bit and discerned some kind of vocation, then he could begin to explore that vocation, as we're fond of saying nowadays. No, when he met Christ, he was called at that moment to the ministry, which was to be his lifelong passion. Vocation for Paul was not something which came along later. When he came to Christ, he was sent by Christ. Um, it's like the uh, saying which you've 
probably heard, which is equally true. Our baptism is our ordination as Christians. And verses 5 and 6 of chapter 19, the whole point of this relationship is that they do the work of making God known to the other nations, like the priests they needed as intermediaries, so they are now in turn that priesthood. We've already talked about that with my famous Garfunkel story, which I won't go into again here. So lots of things this uh, passage teaches us about how we come into a covenant relationship with God. But one more thing to say before I leave you to it. That's all about how we get there. How do we stay there? And it's very clear we stay by faithfulness. You you get in verse 8 that motif which you get again and again in the Old Testament. God says what he wants and the people as one man, of course, say, oh yes, uh, of course we'll do that. How could you ever think we wouldn't, O oh Lord? But we, of course, as readers who have read more of the story, have seen again and again the faithfulness of God contrasted with the unfaithfulness of the people. And again and again, he needs to remind them by allowing disaster to hit them. And you can't say that he didn't warn them about that. Like a marriage, there's lots you have to do to get into it, but there's only one thing you have to do to stay in it, and that is to remain faithful, to let your love never wane or diminish. And the sad irony of this whole series, both before and after this event, is how hollow those words actually are. We will do everything the Lord has said. If only that were true, if only that were true for them, and if only it were true for us. Next week, we're going to see how quickly and how dramatically that promise was broken.